Let's pray. Father, we do, we do thank you for giving us hope through Jesus Christ. Lord, it is so easy for us to find hope in things that are here, to find hope in things that will fade, to find hope in things that don't last. And yet, God, you have saved us to an eternal living hope in Jesus Christ. And so, God, I pray that over the next few minutes as we consider the letter that you inspired Peter to write, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to understand more fully why that is so important that we understand the hope that we have in him. Spirit, we pray that you would speak to us by the truth of your word. Lord, give us understanding and insight into how we might apply what we are hearing from you, from your word today. And God, I pray that if there's anything that comes out of my lips that is out of line with what you have for us, God, I pray that that would be forgotten, removed from our minds. Lord, we are here for you, and we, your people, seek to hear you speak as we consider your word together. We ask this in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you have your copy of God's word and would like to open it up to uh, the book of 1 Peter, feel free. There will be some things on the slides. There's also Bibles right in front of some of you. They are new. They just get, actually, they're not new. They just got put back in the pews. Uh, I know a couple of folks were like, oh, the hymnals and pews, are, our Bibles are back. Yay. But while you're turning to First uh, Peter, if you don't know where that is, go to the back of the book, back of the Bible and move forward a couple of books uh, and you'll find Second Peter and then First Peter. And if you get to uh, Hebrews, go the other way. But as we begin, I want us to think briefly about suffering. Yay. I know it's not something we often think about, but suffering is a very present reality in the book of First Peter. In fact, it's been a present reality for Christians from the earliest days. Persecution and suffering have gone hand in hand with God's people from the very first decades of our faith. And for some, suffering and persecution has weakened their faith. It's caused them to crumble back. It caused them to fall away, go to the things that they believed before. For others, it has strengthened their resolve. And in fact, throughout history, we could look and see that anytime the church has been persecuted, anytime the church has gone through suffering, typically the church was stronger because of it. And we would grow because of that. There's a, an author by the name of Nick Ripkin. That's not his real name. That's his, his pen name that he goes by. But he was a, a missionary overseas. He worked in some of the most difficult nations in the world. And he wrote about that in several books, one of them called The Insanity of God. And, and in his book, Nick talks about some of his own experiences in some of the most difficult nations. But then he also tells stories of other believers and the persecution that they went to. And, and one time, Nick shares a story when he was in Somalia. He said that uh, over the course of time, they, they had a chance to, to see some people, see some Muslim uh, men come to faith. There were four men in particular. And, and he said what, what happened was these guys came to faith, of course, 
for, for so many people, coming to faith is a challenge. For Muslims, it takes so much more faith, it seems, for them to overcome not only that spiritual barrier, but then also the cultural shame that they will go through. And yet these men believed in the truth of God's word and they submitted their lives. They got baptized. And Nick and some of his fellow missionaries got to celebrate the Lord's Supper with them. And it was a glorious occasion. Two weeks later, Nick got the bad news that those four Muslim background believers were killed at nearly the exact same time in a, in a calculated attack on them. And it so frightened so many other people. In fact, Nick and his team, they had some Muslims who were providing security detail for them. It was just how it worked there in Somalia. And so what was happening is there were some of these radicals who wanted to root out every mention of Christianity in the land. And so they, they created a kill list. And they, they put on this name all known Christians, all known Somali Christians that they knew about. No Americans, no Westerners were on that list. Only Somali believers. But there were also Muslims who were on that list. And some of Nick's bodyguards were on the kill list. They were targeted by these radical Muslims. And you think, why would these radical Muslims want to target their own people? So these guys were afraid, these guards, these bodyguards. And so they begged and they pleaded and they said, Nick, will you please go to these radicals? Will you please tell them that we are not Christians? And so Nick was like, this is crazy. I'm going to lose my life walking into this place. So he went in and got to see some of the leaders in this group. And he said, gentlemen, I need to tell you that on your list, you have people who are not Christians. These couple of guys that are helping me are not believers. They are Muslims. And they, they, they pray five times a day. One of them has even gone on the Hajj. They go to the, the mosque weekly. They celebrate Ramadan. They are good Muslims. And so the, the, these radicals, ironically, looked at the list and they said, well, thank you for bringing that to our attention. And they took them off the list. And then Nick asked this question. He said, you've got this list of 150, 200 people. He says, we know that there are probably only 30 or 40 Christians in the whole nation of Somalia. Why do you have such a big list? And why aren't any Westerners on that list? And immediately he regretted asking that question. And he said, because if we put Westerners, if we put missionaries on that list... They'll become martyrs and everybody will rise up. People in the West will want to send more people. But if we kill the new believers here in Somalia, if we kill the Muslims that are on the fence, then it'll make you want to go home. And unfortunately, Nick said that at that time, many Christian agencies out of fear of what was going to happen to the new believers in Somalia left. They didn't remain. Nick stuck around for a while and he ended up moving to some other countries in the region. But persecution is a very real thing. And that happened in the last 20 years. 
You know, we, we think about persecution as being something very far off. It's something, you know, as Americans, we have this freedom to worship. We, we get to enjoy being together. And we don't have to fear anything. And yet we have to recognize that persecution is something that in his sovereignty, God allows. In his sovereignty, God ordains. And yet God is glorified somehow through that. And so Peter, as he's writing to, his, to these believers, he's, he's helping them understand God has a plan for you. And so let me just give you a little bit of background because, uh, you know, this, as I mentioned, persecution and suffering was a major factor for, for the initial audience that Peter was writing to. In fact, he opens up his letter and he says this. He's in 1 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who, uh, who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And, and I want you to see that these guys were scattered because of persecution. They were sent out in those places. They, they were running away from what was happening. In fact, one of the very cool things that we get to see in the book of Acts is that when persecution hit, right after Stephen was martyred, when persecution hit, the apostle Paul, before he became the apostle Paul, Saul was standing there giving approval, and this, this great persecution broke out on the church. Well, it forced them to go far away. It forced them to run. And well, you know what went with them? The gospel. And so churches got planted in Pontus and Cappadocia and Bithynia. And yet now these new churches are growing and people there are thinking, wait, what are these Christians? Who are these people? And so it's likely that, that Peter wrote this letter from Rome as a means of encouraging these believers who are in what is now known as Eastern Turkey. And there were pressures on them from, from, pagan poly, poly, from the pagan polytheistic culture in which they lived. You see, most Christians back in the day were deemed atheists. Because they didn't believe in enough gods. They didn't believe that the, 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 the emperor was God. They didn't believe in the Roman pantheon of gods. They didn't believe in enough gods. So Christians oftentimes were called atheists. What? You believe in only one God? What? Are you crazy? And so as Peter writes this book with the suffering that these Christians had, he wants to help them understand it. He wants to encourage them to live. You see, some of these people were slaves to pagan masters. Some of the people that he was writing to, Christians in these churches, were women who were married to unbelieving pagan husbands. And their lives were, were full of suffering. And so he, as Peter begins, uh, rather than simply telling them to deal with a bad situation, he seems to be encouraging his readers and encouraging us, I think, to persevere with a proper perspective. We see this really in the first two chapters of, of 1 Peter. And, and I'm sorry that this week we didn't have notes in there. There'll be some things on the slides if you want to write them down. But no fill in the blanks. Sorry, Kate. Um, but Peter, I think, wants us to help us get a proper perspective of what is going on. If I'm facing persecution, why am I going through this? And it begins with this beautiful prayer that Brian read earlier in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be, ready to be revealed 
in the last time. Now, I want you to think about it like this. If you've accepted Jesus' gift of salvation, if you've responded to the call of the gospel, if you've received him and you call yourself a Christian, let me ask you, what are you saved from? Are you simply saved like fire insurance to keep yourself out of hell? Well, if that's all you think your salvation is, then you're selling your salvation short. Because... And, and if you think that you're saved in some peace-filled, easy life, the life of a Christian is not an easy thing to endure. But Peter reminds us that we've been saved to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is not a hope that is based on myths. This is not a hope that is based on wishful thinking and some just charismatic leader. It's hard to deny the fact that Jesus said there is a resurrection and then he brought himself back to life. We have this living hope because Jesus has conquered the grave. We have no reason to fear death. We have no reason to be afraid. But then he tells us, he continues by saying that our inheritance is imperishable. We have this eternal inheritance that is not something that will decay or rot. It is everlasting. It is undefiled. Our inheritance is pure. It's not diluted with carnal implications of this world. It is sealed up in heaven for you and for me. Our inheritance is unfading. It'll never diminish. It is as vibrant now as it was when Christ promised it to us. And it is kept in heaven, guarded by God's power for us. Now think about this. We, all, we, we may understand inheritances here, right? One of my favorite things to do when I'm mowing is to listen to the Rick Edelman show because he talks about retirement and investments and crypto, whatever, and all these really cool things. Well, as I'm walking around, I'm thinking about it. I'm making sure, am I, am I fully prepared for us to move on, us to graduate and leave our things to our kids? And I think about the inheritance, but, but think about this. If all I had was a hundred dollars and I had it today. And in 40 years, I'm going to graduate. I'm going to die. God's going to take me. And all I had was the hundred dollars for my kids valued in today's dollars. What would that be worth in 40 years? Maybe five bucks. That has faded. It's diminished. Inflation has weakened the ability of that to sustain. So that's why we invest things, right? Carnally to, to make things grow in order to have something for someone else. Think about it like this. I was given a, a very nice guitar about 10 years ago. There was a, a man in our church who had received a very nice inheritance. And he said, Joel, I'd like to bless you with it. So he bought me a Taylor guitar. It was really cool. Now, the thing is the Taylor guitar, it's made of wood. And if I never took care of it and in 40 years gave it to my kids, if I just left it in its case and it was somewhere tucked away in our house or put it out in the shed, ooh, may that never be. When my kids open that case in 40 years, that, that guitar might be more valuable, but it'll be way more brittle because it hasn't been cared for. It hasn't been looked after. See, every inheritance that we may want to give or receive here on earth has value, but it's always under the risk of, of perishing because of market volatility, because of inflation, because of theft or decay. 
But I hope you recognize that our eternal inheritance through Jesus Christ is secure and sure. It is permanent. And so he not only reminds us of our sure inheritance, but Peter also seems to echo James' James's comments that we considered last week on the purpose of persecution. Look at what it says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6-9. through 9. He says, in this you rejoice. So now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that, the, that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You see, the persecution, suffering, trials that we encounter are, are these refining instruments. We talked about it last week that, you know, like gold is, is heated up and that dross, the, the, the junk that is the impurities in that gold is sweeped away, whisked away by the, by the, uh, wor- the metallurgist, I guess. And God is doing that same thing in us as we go through trials He's boiling up in us all those impurities so that they can be removed and his reflection can be seen in us. But I think part of what Peter is doing here is he's pressing reset on the minds of his readers, on the minds of these believers in Turkey. And and I think he's helping them to recalibrate their thinking. Do you remember when GPS systems first came out? You know, those global positioning. Some of you guys might have them in your cars. Some of you have them on your phone. You stick them on your dashboard and it tells you where to go because we don't have mental maps in our brains anymore. Does anybody know how to read a map anymore? Or do you have to? Okay, some people, all people born before like 1990 know how to read a map. But do you remember what would happen when you would miss a turn? Right. You're driving down the road and you miss you forgot. And then the, the voice comes on and says recalculating. It's that computer woman voice recalculating, recalculating. And she tells you to try to go back the way you're going. And hopefully she doesn't take you off a cliff. But there, she's trying to find a new way to get there. And so what Peter is doing, what it seems like he's doing is helping his believers recalculate what is happening in the midst of the persecution they're encountering. So imagine this. Imagine if you're being a good Christian. Imagine if you're trying to be obedient to all that God has called you to and that you have this horrible master, this horrible boss. You're married to this spouse who just constantly is berating you. You you live in a city where Christians are being beaten and put in jail. And you're thinking, God, why am I encountering this if this is what being a Christian is? So it's like Peter saying, don't look at the pain. It's like he's trying to get our minds off of the pain, off of the persecution, and onto the prize that is waiting for us. He continues in 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse 13. He says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, so you also be holy in all your conduct. As it is written, you shall be holy, for I 
am holy. So Peter's urging them to be mentally prepared for what is going on, what is happening, what is ahead. And he seems to be urging them to set their hope in the future rather than in the present. Don't set their hope on just being freed from this persecution. Don't set their hope on just being freed from prison. And I think for some of us, this is a a difficult thing to do because there are some of us who are very much about justice, about rights, about if I'm being offended, if I'm being hurt, if I'm being um, ridiculed, then, then I need to have my rights restored. I need to be justified. And yet Peter's saying, no, 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 no. Don't focus on that. To have the long view. We must be willing to give up our rights and have them trampled for the sake of the gospel. And so Peter says in, in 1 Peter 2, So put away all malice, all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. You know, I know it's tough to let things go. When we've been offended, I mean, don't you just want to you hold on to it? You want to get back at someone? And yet Peter's saying, let it go. Like frozen. Let it go. Let it go. And I don't know the rest of the words. But he's also reminding them, not only to have this long perspective, but reminding them of their new, true identity. You see, for them, it's not about being a Jew or a Gentile. It's not about being a Galatian or a Cappadocian, an Asian or an American, a Poolsvillian, if that's how we would say it. It's about being God's people. 1 Peter 2, 9-10 to says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, pay attention to who we truly are. It's not about your passport. It's not about your citizenship. Those can be burned and revoked. It's not about some exceptionalism because of where we were born. But now that we are in Christ, it is about who we are in Him. The ESV says in here, it says, you are a chosen race. Or another way we could say it is, you are a chosen people. You see, we don't deserve anything. It is because God loved us. God loved you and chose you, called you out and said, I want you to be one of my people. And there are all sorts of conversations today about race and critical race theory and race that. And now are, are, is racism there? Is it rampant? Is this a, a microaggression or is this blatant? Is this a hate crime? Is it, what is this? And so I hope you understand that when, when, when Peter is telling us and telling the, his listeners there in, in the first century that you are a chosen race, it's not because they were any better than anybody else. All of those theories of race came out of a desire to prove, to come up with some sort of argument that one group of people was better than another. And I think what they found is that biologically... We're all the same. We are so similar in our DNA that you couldn't tell a person from Africa or Asia. You almost couldn't tell how different they are based on their DNA. And yet God in his 
beautiful wisdom has created us so distinct and different. And so he's called us from every nation, tribe, and tongue. See, we get to be chosen because of Christ. It's not our skin color, not our nation of origin. It's not our social status or political leanings. But we are chosen simply by God's grace. But not only are we a chosen people, we get to be a royal priesthood. We are priestly religious servants of the King of Kings. We get to serve Him. We are a holy nation. We are a nation without borders. Set apart and distinct from people around us. So because of that, we should react differently. We should talk differently. We should act with compassion. We should give generously to those in need. And we are a people for his own possession. We are God's people. We are all these things for a purpose that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And I think this is why it's so damaging and offensive when celebrity pastors and popular Christian leaders and well-known, uh, other well-known Christians act in a way that is contrary to God. I mentioned in the, in the midweek letter that we send out that this week Zoe and Andrew and I are going to go to the SBC convention, the Southern Baptist Annual Meeting. And, and I tell you what, there are news media outlets. I heard last week that there's some, I don't know, a thousand media outlets that are trying to get media passes just to see what's going to happen because they want to watch Christians act like non-Christians. They want to see what blows up and they want to be able to report on and be the first ones there. There have been articles about leaked letters and bullying and name calling and all sorts of things. Christians not acting like Christians. And as Christians, we have to remember that our brothers and sisters in Christ are just as prone to sin as we are. But that is why we have to pay attention to what Peter says next. In 1 Peter 2, 11 to 12, he says, Brothers, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of, your, of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Yeah, I hope, I hope that as the proceedings of the SBC convention happen, that people will get a chance to see Christians acting like that. Being honorable, being gentle, abstaining from the passions of the flesh, abstaining from our own selfish desires, seeking to make decisions for the good, for God's glory. And so I want to encourage you and me, when people speak or act against us, we must fight every urge to act according to our carnal passions. We must trust that God is sovereign and in control. Now, I realize that we've only just considered the first couple of chapters, but I, I, I wanted to take a, a good bit of time on this because I think it's important to understand what Peter's doing here. He's helping us get our minds right about the suffering, about persecution, about things that we will encounter. But here's something I, I just want 
to you to have securely in your mind. Your eternal inheritance is secure. You have been saved to a living hope that is unfading, and your identity is no longer bound up in your birthplace or your citizenship, but your identity is bound up in Christ. So we get to act like Christ would have us act. And so because of that, we get to live by different standards, which is what Peter gets to next. And when he tells us and he tells his, his first century readers, submission is the way, is the godly way to persevere. Submission is the godly way to persevere. Now, I don't know about you, you know, as an American, I've always heard about standing up for my rights, standing up for this. So submission sounds like the last thing I should do. Submission sounds like not the thing that we should do, but when you consider the fact that we live by different values, we live as Christians by different standards, we are citizens of an upside-down kingdom, submission is the godly way to persevere. And Peter describes several different scenarios. He, he talks about, first of all, submitting to governing authorities, to those authorities who would, who would have it out for Christians, authorities like those people in Somalia that Christians there are, are enduring. He says in 1 Peter two thirteen to 17, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For it is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Now keep in mind that Peter was writing to people who were living in a country where the emperor was, was, was essentially an autocrat. And he was often considered a deity. And those people worshipped the pantheon of Roman gods. To be a person, person who worshipped only one god and, and that was not the emperor was considered treasonous. And so Peter's not saying that they should deny Christ in order to submit to authority. But that they should submit in whatever way they could as long as it wasn't denying Christ. You see, as Christians in America, one of the big challenges that, that we have is, is the balance between our unalienable rights as humans and our ability to act as good citizens. I think we saw this in a big way over the last year with the pandemic. I would have various conversations with people that felt like masks were government overreach. The Bible doesn't say anything about masks. But he does say, submit to authorities. And I think Peter is encouraging us to submit. Now masks are gone and yay. But I think this would also include being willingly, willingly submitting to punishment for our religious beliefs. You see, believers all around the world can be imprisoned or beaten or killed for their faith. See, Peter, I think, is encouraging us to live as servants of God first. Not in a proud way, but in humility. 
But then he gets a little bit closer to home. He says, not only submitting to governing authorities, but submitting to bosses or, or masters. You see, for most of the first century Christians, many of them would, be, would have been considered slaves or indentured servants. And as indentured servants, they were required to worship the, 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 the God of their, of their master. And those who refused could be beaten and oppressed and yet living in humble submission, acting with grace toward their masters, gave them freedom to love and serve as Christ did. Because Jesus is our ultimate example. Look at what it says in 1 Peter 2, 21 to 24. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And when he was reviled, excuse me, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. And then after talking about the workplace, Peter brings things closer to home and he encourages wives to submit to husbands. In, in 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6, you see, as we read this, we wouldn't need to put ourselves back in the context of that century. In their time, women basically had no rights. They were barely better than slaves. And men so often were encouraged or at least expected to be unfaithful. And abuse was just part of life. And so part of what made Jesus so appealing to women is that he treated them with dignity and respect. He saw them as equal image bearers of God. They had different roles to play but bore the image of God Equally, And so Peter's admonition is admonition to these women to submit to their husbands is not an endorsement of the cultural standard, but rather he's focused on a higher perspective. Look, look at what he says in, in 1 Peter 3, 1 to 4. He says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. And when they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning. Be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry or, wear, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. You see, since the message of the gospel was so popular among women, many women listening to Peter's message would have, been, would have likely been married to men who were not believers. Not unlike some of us. And so imagine this. Imagine if as a, a first century woman, guys, I'm going to talk to the women just for a second. But imagine if as a first century woman, you, 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 you get a, you're in an arranged marriage. You have this husband and you guys start a family and, and you're learning to love him. And then he, he isn't very faithful to you. And, and he begins to beat you and he begins to act like all the other men. You were hoping something would be better, but it's not. And so you begin to 
be a little bit passive aggressive. You begin to put a little extra salt in his meal and make him not want to eat it. And you begin to slam doors and the argument, the tension is there. It's just ugly. And then one of your friends invites you to one of these gatherings of Christians. And, 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 and so you come in and you begin to hear about the things that Jesus taught and the way that he encouraged us to be gentle and loving, to be humble. And so as a, as a pagan woman, you, you, you think, wow, that I kind of like what I'm hearing. I'm liking this Jesus dude. And, and man, if my husband was just like that, that'd be, oh, that'd be great. And so you recognize, you hear what Jesus did for you as he died on the cross and he rose from the grave and he took your sin and, and, and put it on him, conquering that. And so by faith, you receive this free gift of salvation. You think, I want that. And so you continue to go, you continue to be a part of these gatherings of these Christians and you begin to realize I need to act differently at home. And you hear a, a letter like Peter's letter that says, wives, submit to your husbands. And so at home, you begin to speak differently to your husband. You begin to respond differently to his actions, to his Rather than with anger, you respond with love and service and you begin to embody Jesus' teaching. Maybe, hopefully, your husband begins to take notice and he begins to see something's different about my wife. Maybe he doesn't yell as much. Maybe he doesn't cheat. It's quite possible that he doesn't stop any of those things. And maybe he begins to join you in those gatherings. And begins to see why you've changed. And begins to see the hope that you have. And maybe by God's grace, he too becomes a Christian. A follower of Christ. See, I think that's why, Paul, why, why Peter is urging wives to submit to their husbands. He's not a misogynist. He's not a chauvinist. He's not trying to make it so that all men are superior to all women. That's not his point. I think what he's trying to encourage is that the gospel be lived out at home. He's trying to help us see how living Jesus' way can make a huge difference. And then, like all the other New Testament writers, Peter doesn't leave anybody out. He goes and talks to the men and he says, Men, likewise, husbands, in 1 Peter 3, 7, Live with your wives in an understanding. Oh, I lost my spot. Sorry. Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Men, I think Peter is simply encouraging us to be the kind of men that our wives would want to submit to. See, I want to make sure you understand, gentlemen, for those of you who are married, keep this in mind. For those of you who are not yet married, here's something to be, pay attention to. Your relationship with your wife impacts your relationship with God. If there is strife here, there's a disconnect there. Make sure that they're both healthy. And then Peter continues in a more general sense. He encourages all of us to steward what we have and to show hospitality even in the midst of persecution. 
First Peter 3, 8 to 9, he says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on, on the contrary, bless, for, you, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Notice all the attitudes that we're supposed to embody. Unity, sympathy, love, tenderness, humility. So I wonder, how are we doing that? How are we, how are we, acting, are we acting those ways with, with people around us, especially people who don't know Christ? Are we acting in a way that demonstrates humility and unity and grace? But if we were to face persecution, would we have that mindset to think, God is doing something here, and I'm going to trust him in this, so I'm going to keep acting the way that I should, not that a way, maybe not the American way. What is the godly way to act? And then Peter, later on in 4, 7, and 9, he says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Peter returned. In fact, that that phrase sober-mindedness shows up about three different times throughout the book, helping us keep our minds in the midst of persecution and suffering. And then he says, show hospitality. Keep showing hospitality. Open up your home to those in need. Open up your home to, to others. But then he, he has one final thing. And he gets specific to the elders of the, of the congregation. He says, elders should be humble shepherds and not onerous leaders. Now, when you think about civil leaders, when you think about those who begin to get a little bit of power in the world around us, how do they begin to act? Do they expect some sort of recognition? Do they expect some sort of homage? Well, Peter is making it very clear that the elders in the church, the leaders in the church should not be that way. And so he encouraged them. He says in, in 1 Peter 5, 2 to 4, elders, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief Shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And again, we have this upside down nature of the kingdom. Leaders are to serve. And every elder is just as prone as anyone else to stumble. We have all sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. But elders in the church should seek to model the attitudes and actions that every Christian should embody, and namely, humility. And then he continues in 1 Peter 5, 5 to 7, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. I know that as citizens of America, we have certain rights. 
We have freedom to worship and gather, and we are allowed to live out the faith into which we have been saved. And there's a part of 1 Peter that may feel a bit irrelevant to us. We're not undergoing the same kind of persecution that first century that our brothers and sisters in the first century encounter. We're not undergoing the same persecution that our brothers and sisters around the world are, are, are encountering. But do you remember what Peter called his readers? Elect exiles. Chosen exiles. You see, you and I are chosen people who live in a land that is not our own. We may have been born here or we chose to make America our home, but we have to recognize that as America changes morally, we will feel more and more like exiles. And we have to have that mindset. We will feel more and more out of place in this land. And Peter's, Peter's encouragement to get our thinking right, thinking about our inheritance and our identity, and then to act properly, submitting and stewarding is a good exhortation for us. As our culture shifts, look not at the next election, not at the next law that's passed, not at the next whatever, but keep our minds on the inheritance that is before us and keep acting like we should, like Christians, like God's people, not necessarily like Americans. Let's pray together. God, thank you for this encouragement from Peter, from your word. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to to be sober-minded, to be calm as we experience so many changes in the world around us. God, I pray that you'd help us. Help us to be faithful. To live in humility, to walk in humility the way that you've called us to. So that others may see you in us and long for that. And Lord, when you call us to face suffering and persecution, help us to have the right perspective. And to act accordingly. We're going to need your strength and help to do this because we can't do it on our own. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name.